0: Good evening, everybody. Good evening Loudon and welcome to uh, the uh, September Transportation Land Use Committee meeting. Um, as always, I start off with a trivial fact um, that is of worth very little to everybody, um, uh, which is a little bit contrary to all the other committees in the world and uh, but a lot of fun. Uh, September 18th was the Air Force birthday normally we would have a cake and the oldest and youngest Air Force member in the room which would be me and both counts would cut the cake um, we have to forego that tonight I tried to offer a rendition of the Air Force song at last night's uh, Board of Supervisors meeting I was rudely gaveled down by the chair and not permitted to do that I will spare you that this evening and give you this one little piece of trivial fact that a modern fighter aircraft carries more bomb tonnage on an air-to-ground mission than an entirely loaded B-17 from World War II. And with that, please join me in in the Pledge of Allegiance. Thank you. I pledge allegiance to the
1: flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible,
2: with liberty and justice for all.
3: Uh,
0: We have a reduced uh, committee membership tonight, and I want to ensure that we have a quorum here because we have one action item. So I've asked that that action item uh, be moved up to the first item, and that is an FAA community process to mitigate aircraft noise within the area of the Airport Impact Overlay District. If I can ask staff to come forward to present that item. Good evening, Mr. Chairman. Good evening, and um, at the appropriate time, uh, if you, you, I don't think we, I think we know all of you, so I don't think we need to introduce. But when you, we introduce the V team, if we could ask them to introduce themselves over the phone, that'd be great. Yes, sir. All right?
4: Let me get set up here. Jackie so, you're
0: looking at me like, <laughs> this is news to you.
4: <laughs> right. So, um, so good evening. My name is Josh Peters. Um, Jackie Marsh, Dusty Smith from the county, and on uh, the. Um, Webex we do have uh, Jim um, and Jason from Vionair and uh, Jim and Jason if I could get you to just say hello and introduce yourselves as well
5: hey everybody Jim Allardyce from Vionair how you doing
0: hi Jim thanks for joining us
5: go Air Force
0: and it's Vionair not Vionair right
5: yes sir Vionair
0: Vionair got it and uh,
6: good afternoon my name is Jason Schwartz I work with Jim at uh, Vionair
3: Happy
0: to be here tonight. Thanks, Jason. So, um,
4: Mr. Chairman, is it okay if I just step through the slides? Absolutely, Ivan, you bet. Okay, so this item, as the committee knows, is a regular update to the Transportation and Land Use Committee on staff efforts to open dialogue with the Federal Aviation Administration regarding community concerns over airport noise. This effort was initiated by the board this year while adopting amendments to the airport impact overlay district, uh, which occurred in January. This item, uh, tonight's item has two parts. Uh, The first one is the regular informational update summarizing staff activity since our last update to the committee on July 19th. And the second piece of it is the action item that you referred to Mr. Chairman, uh, to discuss and provide a recommendation to the board regarding staff's suggested approach to forming a work group to participate in the intended community process with FAA. County staff has not <clears throat> received uh, a response from the FAA's uh, community engagement officer yet. County staff has made a number of requests for uh, a staff to staff meeting, and we've asked uh, assistance in this matter from our consultant. We will report back when we have more to share. Uh, so this slide covers the timeline and submission of county comments regarding the FAA's open comment period on noise policy. And this committee and the full board endorsed a draft uh, comment letter during previous meetings and that letter was submitted to the FAA on July 27th. And so really it's the last bullet here that occurred since our last meeting. It's the submittal of that uh, comment letter that that we discussed at a previous meeting. So this is also uh, an update, but this really moves into introducing uh, the action items. So the next two slides, will be looking at uh, what we're asking the committee to weigh in on tonight. And this is the staff recommended approach to forming a work group to participate in the community process that the board has asked us to look into. And so on this point, before I, before I talk about um, the recommended method to form the group, I'm going to ask Jim Allardyce from Vine Air to, to talk through and summarize um, the work group process, what that looks like uh, and what they'll be facilitating for us. So, Jim, if you could give your comments.
5: Yes, sir. So we have done a number of projects similar to this. As a matter of fact, um, we're actually working at all three of the Washington airport uh, area airports at this point. Um Our recommendation to the staff has been to form a work group that gives a representative cross-section of the community so that when we make the final recommendations, as broad a a comment um, area, you know, coverage that we could get, Uh, would be representative of the entire area that may be affected by any changes that we recommend. Um, Historically, we've been able to go in with a work group such as we're recommending here and get unanimous consent for whatever recommendations we move forward with. The importance of this is because the FAA and the airports, as a matter of fact, like to have as broad a consensus as possible um, what we try to do is uh, get consensus from the community when we go forward with the recommendation but in the process we also talk to the faa we also talk to the airport and we get feedback from them along the way as the work group is studying and making recommendations for how we should go forward that way we get some kind of an idea as to whether or not what we're considering is operationally feasible and uh, above all is safe. So uh, the one thing you cannot compromise obviously is safety. The other thing that you usually dig into a little bit is efficiency of the airport when you're trying to come up with some kind of a solution. And when we do those, those things with the broadest possible representation the FAA and/or the airport is most likely, more likely, I should say, uh, to be able to accept the recommendations. So that's what we're hopeful to do as we form this working group, um, is is to be able to show the FAA and the and the airport that we've got a broad consensus uh, going forward. I, I think that we will start by uh, approaching the airport with. Our plan and our group, and then we will work through the airport to uh, discuss uh, proposals with the FAA. So that's just kind of the long and the short of it. I think um, when I say the broadest possible rep- representation, I, I'd want to caveat that with the fact that the larger the group, um, you know, the more opinions you have, sometimes the slower the process that's fine, so we want to get as broad a representation as we can with the, with the least amount of people that we can. Usually a working group of about 10 people is, is ideal, but if we need to do more than that to make sure that we have adequate representation, that's fine as well. So that's just kind of a, an overview and I'd be happy to answer any questions anybody has.
0: That's a great overview, Jim, I appreciate it. Um, are there questions for the Vionair team? Off the bat, we might as well dive in for those because I've got several already. Madam Chair, or Supervisor Glass.
6: Thank you, uh, Chairman Turner, and thank you for uh, coming out here uh, today to speak um, regarding this. Um, I understand that Vionair will host countywide community meetings sometime in the coming months. Can you explain those meetings and what the status is on their scheduling? i've had um a few constituents to reach out and um, wanted to speak with you all
2: sure
5: um we're in the process of setting all that up it really and and i'll refer to this group this working group as the design team that's just kind of generically what we do because we're designing procedures with this group um but once we get the design team formed and we get uh, to meet with them and we can start to put together a schedule uh, of meetings and try to find out um, what issues that we really have to address and, and accomplish. Then we're gonna get more of a, of a schedule for when we, were, we can go out and do public briefings. I believe we had also discussed maybe doing kind of like a kickoff meeting for the public just to let them know and inform them you know what we were doing but it would be a very high level meeting to, to just basically say we're taking a look at the procedures that exist today and try to find out if there's any alternative viable alternatives that we can recommend that are implementable and that is the biggest single word that, that we use for anything that we do Is whatever we recommend has to be implementable and so when we go out to the public, we really, really want to drive that point home because what it does is it, it sets the expectations of, of what can and cannot be done. And you know, we try to do that right up front with both the working group slash design team and the public. Um, once we do that, that kind of kickoff meeting, if that's what the staff wants us to do, uh, we go in with the working group, the design team, uh, we try to come up with a recommendation. And at that point, we would go back out if, again, if the staff uh, approves that to the public and say, this is what we came up with. If there's any glaring oversights or, or any um, huge groundswell saying that, oh, what you came up with is just totally untenable, then we go back to the drawing board and try again. Um, most of the time, if we've done our job and we have a good enough cross-section, we, we will have considered the things that are most important to those communities. And hopefully the recommendation that we come up with is satisfactory. Um, it, in that case, then we don't need to have a third meeting. But um, if we need, need to have a third meeting, if we had to go back to the drawing board and come back out, we can do that as well. So we're very flexible on, on, on that.
6: Thank you,
1: Madam Chair. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Can we start
0: the clock, Jackie? Thanks.
1: <laughs> all right. Um, first of all, thanks for everything. We do appreciate the assistance. I have a couple of questions. One, when you talk about when we look at at, at slide number two of six, and it said this, that the staff has not received a written email or telephone response from the FAF or, or CEO. Are we? Tr- are we? Have we hooked or tried to? because I tried and it didn't really work, hook in our congressional delegation to see if they could at least get us a response from the FAA because that would be really helpful. That's my first question. My second question is one thing you said is that you would first approach the airport. Can you give me the rationale for first approaching the airport since the airport has made it really clear already that they don't have power control and all they would do really is turn around and try to get a hold of the FAA. So. Are we not just losing time by approaching the airport when we know their answer already? And then, thirdly, as I look at your map on page four or six, are you aware that that the that the when we talk about creating a, a large coalition and, and with all the HOAs and I completely agree with that with that. Um, idea to create a coalition of, of HOAs and, and others, but when but when you look at the map that you put up, the HOAs themselves, I mean, like so what Brambleton wants and what Willisford at the Grant wants are two very different things. Because if it's not over Brambleton, if the if the airplane noise is not over Brambleton, it might be over Willisford, and so you're creating a coalition of HOAs that want basically the opposite things. Um, in this coalition and short of saying there'll be no airplanes flying at all, I don't know how we would please everybody um, in this coalition that we're creating. Thank you.
5: Sure, Um, if the staff wants to take the first one about the congressional piece.
3: Chair Turner. Go ahead. Uh, I'll take that item. We have purposely held back uh, engaging the congressional delegation, we always know that is available. We know that our board members have a fantastic relationship with them, and if we call them or any of you call them, they will be quick to react. But in in you know complete you know transparency on the whole topic, we're very concerned that FAA is a, is very fragile at this point in time. In order to move to a successful outcome, we need to build good working relationships with the FAA. And if the directive rains down from congressional delegation that you shall and you must engage them, uh, that they may change their posture. The other aspect of that is uh, until VNAR finishes their Work that they're getting ready to start with the work group and have some type of a proposal to even talk with the FAA about. We're we're kind of in a good position, allowing that time to to pass so they can complete their work. And when we do engage the FAA, we have we have substance to to present to them instead of just saying hi. You know, we'd like to talk to you about this in three or four months. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Grob. Uh, Jim, you want to tackle questions two and three?
5: Yes, sir. Um, so the, why approach the airport? Um, the airport is really the, the best conduit to the FAA. Uh, the FAA basically requires third parties such as ourselves collectively to come to them via one of two ways. One is through the airport and, and through the airport, you can do a working group or you can do a round table or you can do direct the recommendations to the airport and the airport feeds those things back to the FAA. The other way is through the regional administrator. The regional administrator way is very cumbersome and it is um, not very efficient as far as getting communications back and forth. Um, we believe if we go to the airport and show them the plan and show them the cross section of the community that's that's going to be represented and show them the task group or the working group that we have formed and say that because we're doing this this public outreach on the front end and because we have um, an organized effort uh, and because our intent is to come out with a solution that is implementable at the end that they will sponsor us to the FAA because they see all the work that we we will have put in on the front end. Um, we believe that it, it, you know, that we have a good working relationship with the airport already. Um, we have not specifically approached them on this project because, quite frankly, we don't have anything to approach them with yet. They do know that we're working with you all, um, and I think that once we get this working group established have a couple of meetings and go to the airport and, and say, this is where we are, this is what we're doing, this is what we hope to accomplish, that uh, they will be more than happy to to be a conduit. Now And that's all they really will end up being. It mm-hmm. is a conduit to the FAA. Mm-hmm. We, we can push our, our recommendations through the airport to the FAA, and the FAA will accept it that way. But they will always say, either go through the administrator or go through the airport. But other than that, we don't really want to talk to you. So um, that's, that's why we're doing it that way. So, um, and the last question, I think your neighbors are a perfect example of what you said over at uh, DCA, because you had basically a, a two different you know, divergent groups that, that wanted different things just like you do here, just like you do anywhere. Uh, and that's why we really want this broad cross-section of the community so that when we get into the working group one of the very first things we do is we establish a design philosophy we rank from top to bottom in importance what the working group feels is the most important issues to them and it could be we don't want airplanes flying over schools or we don't want airplanes flying over churches or whatever it is or you know compatible land you know, over highways, whatever, but we, we go through and get all that worked out. So what we end up doing is we end up defining what success looks like on the front end. That is unique in the business as far as I, I know. And when you do that, it reduces the likelihood of people coming back in the end of the project with objections because an airplane happens to be flying over their house. If it's there, they know why it's there, and they were part of the, the the group that chose to put it there. So that's the way we worked with the folks over at DCA, and you know, the different sides of the river had basically two different philo- points of view and philosophy, and we were able to come out with a unanimous recommendation to the FAA.
0: Go ahead, Madam Chair. Uh, um, we don't need a clock, Jackie.
1: So, th- Thank you. Those answers are, I think, on their face, um, very logical and make sense to anyone who hasn't already been in this process for now for months. And I, I got to say that um, I hope that you are correct. I pray that you are correct because what we have received from the airport has not been um, unclear. They've been very, very, very clear that they really – prefer not to have a process in this to be honest and so you know if what you say is correct that you know we go to them with a a committee and a plan and all that then then I I hope you're right but I will tell you that has not been their stance so far and I truthfully I compliment the airport for being very clear they haven't been um they haven't you know they 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 haven't been at all unclear about what they will do and what they won't do and so so I hope that's that is true, and and this and I I I am a little more optimistic about you know the different communities and their concerns um, because they are they are competing concerns. But I'm certainly willing to uh, it's, well, let's just not just willing but really hoping that that this idea works. And um, I understand that it was that something similar happened with Wash um, with um with Reagan. It was, it was, it was, it was similar, but not. And and I know all. I've been having this conversation now for, I don't know, six years. And so it was, it was not similar enough that I'm also not as confident as you are that the, the different neighborhoods' competing interests won't be the their overriding factor. However, I am more than willing, and in fact, hoping to to be a productive part of this process. And and. At this point, I'm not sure what else to do anyway, so let's see how it goes. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Thank you, Madam Chair. I've got a number of things I'd like to just point out. Um, okay. Uh, uh, Mr. Peters, if we could, this is a good map. I really like this map. I believe that we have a total of another 2,000 houses that are gonna go in, and I believe they are going to go in on the blue shaded area directly underneath Birchwood at Brambleton just to the west of old ox road (coughs) excuse me and i believe they're going to fill in the blue area just to the east of arcola center and to the west of, of old ox road could we get this map updated to show in red where those new developments are going to go. I've seen a map already that has those new developments depicted on it when we were discussing the AI, AIOD. If we could just have those new developments laid on here because it's critical to this map. The second thing I'd like to add to this map is the 1993 Airport 65 contour line. The 9365 contour line for the proposed departure path off runway 30 and the current 65 LDN for the AIOD that we just approved. Um, And for for the Air folks, if you, and it's rough, but if you fill in those two blue segments with houses that have been approved based on the 93 departure path and LDN, we have at least 2,000 homes, and you will see that the 65 LDN goes right over those two communities now i was out knocking doors the other bless you i was out knocking doors the other day and i was in goose creek preserve which is just west of belmont ridge road and just south of the greenway i don't even think that's on this map and the noise was so loud and it was the a post six o'clock departures of the european and and southwest asia flights The noise was so loud, I had to stop talking on the doors, talking to people with their doors open, and the airplanes went over less than every five minutes. And that was on a depiction, not even on this map. All I could think of the whole time I was knocking doors last night, I cannot imagine living in Birchwood or living in South Riding, with the current departures are for runway 30, with the noise that they're having to deal with every single day. Um, For the Viner folks, I cannot remember, I, I remember about 80% of this uh, noise abatement departure procedure one and two. One of them, I believe, is max power to 1,500 feet and then proceed on course or throttle back, and the other one is max power to 800 feet. And I think all, most of the airports in Europe and all the airports in the United States, I believe, if I remember correctly, except two, Dulles being one of them, use one of those procedures, and I believe it's the max power to 1,500 feet. Dulles is the only one that allows them to throttle back at 800 feet, and I believe that results in a slower climb out and therefore lower altitude with more noise. That may all be wrong. If it is, that's fine, but I would like you to include as a, just put a pin in the in the marker that I would like Dulles to begin to comply with noise abatement departure procedures that are, that are the, the, the higher gradient of noise abatement as we go forward in these discussions. Um, and the, and the only thing to vioneer I'd like to point out is these two new housing developments were approved based on the airport's projection in 1993, and their, their studies were not normal five to eight years out. They have insisted, M.Y. has insisted on conducting studies that say this is to end of life at Dulles Airport. This is as far forward as we can see. And so that's the 9365 LDN overlay that will get added to this map. And you will see that it, it is directly over, if you see that spike of blue right under the runway center line, that's a floodplain and overhead transmission lines. That will never have houses in it. Um, and the end of that blue section is a, as it goes into Briarfield Estates, I want to say is about a mile and a half out. So that's th- what you're going to get when you poll the community associations is you're going to get all the people in all these neighbors are going to say, we don't want noise over our houses. But the critical factor is you've got, to, you've got to grade that response from the community based on the number of people that are affected, yes, but also the average ambient noise that that population is living with, and they should get a heavier weight on their protest than uh, communities that are further along on that centerline departure path where the airplane is higher and possibly a lower power setting. So the weight of the, of the housing directly underneath the current departure flight path, which is a left or right turn off run at the departure end of the runway, yeah, it, it, the number of people may be lower or the same or maybe even a little bit more but the noise gradient is much much higher than if you proceed straight ahead on runway 30 by the time you get to Williford or Briarfield Estates. So, I'm going to talk to Vianair offline and we'll get more of that out there. I just wanted that out for the public record that there's a whole lot of things at play in here and and Vianair, I'm sure you guys will factor all this in, but those are some of the more salient ones. Um, that was a long diatribe by me and Vianair team or staff, do you have any any questions or comments or responses? I think I'd depending on how you'd like to
4: direct this discussion I know that we need to at least outline our two action items to make clear what we're asking for votes for and so if it's okay I'll kind of move to those two things so the the two the two parts of the action item are one to endorse the study area which is this blue outlined area we're referring to it as the study area of influence and that's an, an important decision point <clears throat> excuse me because it it becomes the geographic basis for selecting representation. So that's point one. Point two that we're asking for your endorsement of or further discussion is our approach to grouping these communities to select the work group. We have 32 communities that are within um, this study area of influence. We believe that we can select nine, that's what we presented in the staff report, if we select the nine largest communities, Largest is kind of a general term, but large communities that are also dispersed spatially throughout that area that They can represent the interests of those smaller communities that adjoin them. And so this actually gets um, Partly to chair Randall's third question about this issue of competing interests. We're trying to establish a method here and asking for your endorsement that says we have representation Um, that considers spatial, um, the spatial situation, but then also um, um, making sure that nobody's left out because if they don't have a seat at the table, the person right beside them has the seat at the table. So that's what we're asking for the committee's endorsement of. It's the space and then the grouping technique.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that clarification, and I was very comfortable with both recommendations. And I'll just l- open it up for questions. If you have any questions at all on the recommendations of staff for either the group process or the map, Supervisor Glass.
6: I don't have any questions, but I do agree with um, with the
1: recommendations that staff
6: has. So, I would okay. be in agreement with them.
0: Great, Madam Chair.
1: Thank you. On pages uh, uh, four and four and five of the of the report. Um, can you give me the, the, the different colors? I know what the blue is, but, the, the, but the, the light purple and the violet purple, are those where the LDN lines go? Do those have any, do the colors have any particular significance?
3: Yeah, I think the darker purple is just, those are the parts of the communities that are within that blue marketed area, and it gets lighter when it's outside of that area.
1: It's not, a, it's not about the LDS, not with the
3: no. There, there. If you look, there is a very faint LD, LDN lines, I believe, on there, but they're they're pretty hard to see. Um, we, we, I think they can be made uh, more clear. I actually
1: don't see them. I'm still. Looking. That,
3: I think that was the 60. The 65 is.
1: Oh oh right? oh oh! I see that. Yeah 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 yeah. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. I see them.
3: So that that's why there are two different colors. Purple. They're really purple in general. Just marks. Uh, Well, it's an approved rezoning.
1: Ah, all right, I understand, thank you.
0: Uh, Anything else, staff? Because I think we're probably ready for a motion. Or from the Viner team, any questions on my, my long monologue there? No, sir. Okay, with that, I think I'm gonna make a motion. I move the Transportation and Land Use Committee recommend that the Board of Supervisors endorse the staff recommended study area of influence as depicted in attachment one, and the community representation groupings for inclusion in the work group as set forth within the September 20th, 2023, Transportation and Land Use Committee action item. Second Second by Supervisor Glass. Uh, I have no open comment. I think staff's presentation was good and I certainly took up my time. Uh, Anyone else?
1: Just that my I will my I, I kind of have all my fingers crossed for this to be a, a process. I'm I'm not skeptical because of VIONAIR or because of staff or because of anything, but just because we've been in for in this so long, and I'm I'm skeptical, but I I'm skeptical but hopeful. So thank you for uh, everybody.
0: Thank you, Madam Chair, and my, my uh, closing comments for the motion. I just want to thank the VIONAIR team. I am as tickled as I can be that you guys are in the loop here, and I really do appreciate the support. Um, you kind of know how to navigate your way around this highly charged atmosphere of FAA uh, and airport authority and, uh, and county staff I know is leaning on you heavily. We'll meet again, but I really do appreciate that you in the mix. I mean, if we've got a chance of pulling this off, I think it's because you guys are involved and I really appreciate it. And thank you to the staff. This is a very simple, straightforward presentation. I'm very pleased with the progress we're making. So thank you. Uh, with that motion's been made and seconded, all in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed is none, that motion will pass 3-0-2 with uh, Supervisor Kirshner and Supervisor Buffington off the dais. Thank you all very much. Our next item is an update on the uh, unmet housing needs strategic plan progress. If the team could come to the table, that would be great. Welcome,
2: everybody. Thank you, good evening, uh, Chair Turner, Chair Randall, Supervisor Glass, and members of the dais. I'm John Hall with the Department of Housing and Community Development. We are happy to be before you this evening to present both the fourth quarter report of fiscal year 23 and the annual overall report for fiscal year 23 of the Unmet Housing Needs Strategic Plan. I am joined by a couple of staffers, Christine Hillock, who is our Housing Initiatives Project Manager, will be given tonight's presentation, and both uh, Assistant Director Brian Regan and I will be available uh, to answer questions as well at the conclusion. Thank you.
7: Thank you, Mr. Hall. Uh, good evening, Chair Turner and members of the committee. Uh, as Mr. Hall said, my name is Christine Hillock, and I'm the Housing Initiatives Project Manager with DHCD. Uh, tonight, um, as Mr. Hall said, I will provide both the fourth quarter of fiscal year 23 and the 2023 fiscal year annual report on the Unmet Housing Needs Strategic Plan. Uh, this is the sixth update to TLUC regarding the plan, which was approved uh, two years ago on September 8th, 2021. Um, during the past two years since adoption of the plan, the board and staff have taken many important steps in plan implementation and great progress has been made towards achieving the county's attainable housing goals. Attachment one to tonight's item provides an update on each of the 76 key action items uh, out of 133 total that were to be achieved in years one and two of the plan. And attachment two to tonight's item provides a comprehensive list of the 16 significant actions taken uh, in fiscal year 2023. Next slide. Uh, The next three slides provide a brief summary of the significant plan-related actions for the fourth quarter of fiscal year 23. Below each item, you will see noted the unmet housing needs strategic plan strategy, uh, which is associated with each activity. First, on April 1st, 2023, the Northern Virginia Housing Expo was held at Dominion High School in Sterling. Uh, The expo is a cooperative effort of Virginia housing the counties of Prince William, Fairfax, Arlington, and Loudoun, cities of Alexandria, Falls Church, and Manassas Park, the Northern Virginia Association of Realtors, the Metropolitan Washington Council of Governments, or COG, and the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development's D.C. regional office. 427 uh, community members attended the event. Um, This included 320 participants and uh, 107 exhibitors, workshop presenters, and volunteers.
0: Can I, there was 320 in-person participants?
7: Correct, yes, it was an in-person event.
0: Good job.
7: It was the first time the expo had been held in several years in person. It had gone virtual for a couple of years. So yeah, it was uh, an experiment and uh, we were happy with the turnout. Um, At the uh, expo, we also had 12 free workshops and 18 households received free financial counseling that day. Uh, On May 10th, the board approved the community development block grant, Uh, 2023 to 2024 annual action plan, approving funds for community service and capital projects, benefiting low and moderate income persons. On June 14th, 2023, the board adopted the regional fair housing plan, a cooperative effort with seven other jurisdictions led by COG. The plan fulfills HUD requirements and aims to increase collaboration, innovation, and effectiveness of strategies to further fair housing throughout the region. Loudon, we are proud to say, was the first jurisdiction to approve the plan, and I'm also happy to report tonight that since June, all seven of the other jurisdictions have also approved the regional fair housing plan. The plan will now go through final copy editing and then will be submitted to HUD. Next slide, please. On June 20th, 2023, the board adopted a proclamation recognizing June as Homeownership Month. During the month of June, DHCD also hosted four webinars for the general public on the following topics. We provided an overview of Loudoun County Homebuyer Programs, including the ADU Purchase Program and Down Payment and Closing Cost Assistance Programs. We provided an overview of Loudoun County's Home Improvement Programs, including the Home Accessibility and Repair Program, Rental Unit Accessibility Modification Program, and the Granting Freedom Program, which benefits veterans. We provided an overview of fire safety and home escape plans in partnership with the Loudoun County Fire Marshal's Office. And we provided an overview of the Virginia Mortgage Relief Program in partnership with Virginia Housing, which operates this state-run program. Next slide. Within the plan, annual attainable goals are defined as any housing for sale or rent entering the marketplace each year affordable to households with incomes at or below 100% of the area median income. 100% of AMI for a family of four is currently $152,100 in Loudoun County. The plan sets a goal that 20% or approximately 8,200 of forecasted new homes by 2040, as projected based on land use policies in the 2019 comprehensive plan, will be attainable housing. In addition, the plan sets a goal to preserve or create access to uh, 7,800 units for a total of 16,000 attainable units by 2040. Attainable housing can be provided directly through county programs, such as the affordable dwelling unit program, Uh, through our affordable multifamily housing loan program or provided indirectly through initiatives such as the down payment and closing cost assistance program or our rental subsidy programs. Uh, The chart on this slide shows the county's attainable housing goal for each year through 2040. The top line in blue represents the total number of units to be provided for each year and the bottom line in orange represents the number of new units that will be provided. The delta in between is what we consider access to units. For fiscal year 23, the annual goal was 500 units, of of which 350 were to be new units. Next slide, please. This slide shows the number of new units added and units added through access for fourth quarter of fiscal year 23, as well as totals for the entirety of the fiscal year. In FY23, 182 access opportunities were provided, and 164 new attainable units were added to the supply. This fiscal year, the county surpassed its annual goal of providing access to units, but did not achieve its annual goal of adding new units. Overall, the county was able to provide 346 of its goal of 500 attainable units. In FY23, attainable housing opportunities were provided for programs such as the ADU program, Proffered Rental rental Unmet Housing Needs units, and through programs that provide access, such as our State Rental Assistance Program, the Housing Choice Voucher Program, Down Payment Assistance, and Virginia Housing Mortgage Allocations. More than half of the new units this year were as a result of the opening of Loudon View Senior Apartments, a 98-unit low-income housing tax credit property, which benefited from a $5.2 million loan from the county's affordable multifamily housing loan program. Next slide, please. This slide shows a summary of attainable housing goal results for fiscal years 2021, 2022, and 2023. For uh, for this three-year period, the county surpassed its goal for access to new units, but did not meet goals for new units and total units. It is important to note, however, that FY23 has been the best year uh, for both new units and access to units since approval of the plan, surpassing fiscal years 21 and 22. Next slide, please. This is my favorite slide. This final slide tonight shows some good news on the horizon. It provides a summary of county-supported attainable housing projects, which are either under construction or in development. You can see that 223 new attainable units are expected to be online by late calendar year 2023, and an additional 310 units are expected to be delivered in 2025 and 2026. The annual application for the Affordable Multifamily Housing Loan Program is currently open, and responses are due to DHCD by October 2nd. As a result of this process, it is our expectation that we will have new projects and development to report on this time next year. Additionally, a list of certified developers, as you know, was approved by the Board last night as part of the Rental Housing Acquisition and Preservation Loan Program, or RHAP, These certified developers can access county loans through an expedited process should the opportunity to purchase existing multifamily developments arise throughout the year uh, with the goal of preserving market affordable housing and rent-restricted housing at risk of conversion to market rates. And with that, we are happy to answer any questions you may have.
0: Thank you very much. Questions? (coughs) Supervisor Glass.
6: Thank you, Chair Turner. And thank you for this presentation. This is a lot of good news that, uh, that we have here. Um, I'd like to know, what is the status of studying what county land could be used to build attainable housing? I've had a couple of developers um, reach out to me about different county parcels, and I wanted to know what's the best process um, uh, we need for exploring uh, that use.
2: Okay. We are currently working in collaboration with DTCI uh, to develop and design a process. The first uh, action item that we are working on is one specific parcel of land where we expect to do uh, a solicitation in the very near future on on one tract of of publicly owned land where we will solicit to the public best uh, uses for us to achieve our attainable housing goals. Uh, and once that is underway, we will continue to to identify additional publicly owned land to solicit. I also believe that until that process is um, launched, we will accept unsolicited proposals uh, that is um led by dtci but if if it's housing related they can send it to us at DHcd and we can um, coordinate with DtCI on its review
6: okay thank you um and another question that I had um Last night we had a new Virginia majority to come in, and there were a, a number of folks that had um, discussed um, a, a rental assistance program that, that, that they said that they weren't able to um, receive that, the assistance with that. Can you, can you explain to me
1: a little bit more about that and, and what exactly... Mr. Turner, do you mind if I take this question? Sure. Uh, for go ahead. Okay, so I just want to take you guys out the out 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 the. So I had a very long conversation today with Ms. Saeed, Sophia Saeed, who's mm-hmm. from the Virginia Majority. I gave her an update of what's going on. She knows what has to be what has to happen next. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh, uh, you and I could. Sh- she knows that right now there there a meeting cannot happen with staff mm-hmm. because of. Um, because of how our bidding process works, she and I had that discussion today. Okay. So they, if she's not already sent an email, she will send an email saying that they don't plan on bidding on that, on, on doing any doing any bidding since she was in the pre-bid meeting for the RFP. So she and I had a long talk today, and I can, if you need me to fill you in more offline, I can fill you more offline about this about this session. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. I'm fine. Thanks, Madam Chair. All right. Um, uh, let me just follow up on something Miss um, Glass just asked. So I think that I think there, there's been some confusion because there is a list of publicly available of, of land that, that, that is public land. And but all land is public land doesn't mean it's available for to be purchased to build on, and and I I know that there were some questions about um, some public land that we had that wasn't available to be built on, and so that's there's been some confusion. So I know that there is an effort right now to to have a one list of what's what's public land the land that we own and what's public land that we that's billable that, that's sellable and and that can be built on like so over there by the clot more that that's not part of the public land that can be, that, that will be up, and would be available to build on. So I think that's the confusion, is, we, is, that, is that there is a list put out from somewhere of all the, the land that we owned, Versus land that we own that, that is that is possible possibly can be used for development, which is not that much land because we don't land bank and we haven't land banked in the future. So I think that's what's that's a little bit of the confusion that's. Ha- I know what you're talking about, and that's some of the confusion that's happening right now. Because and I only know that because I've been kind of digging around this issue for a while now. So okay, um, I have quite a few questions, Mr. Mr. Chairman. Um, On page four, we talk about the um, ADU closing cost and down payment program. You might not have some of these answers right now if you don't, or face toward the slides. If you don't, that's fine, but I'd like you to get back with me later with these. When we passed a sin tax on cigarettes, some of the money from the sin tax was supposed to be funneled toward housing in general. Now, of course, we passed the half penny, but we also passed the sin tax money. And I don't know where that stands right now. I don't know if that that money has been directed to um, the closing cost and down payment program. I know it wasn't going to be a whole lot. And, and if if a sin tax works well, that's a that's a that's a tax that's decreasing as time goes on because the goal of that is that we discourage people from buying cigarettes. So i like to know what this what the status of that ta- of that particular tax is. Um, And if you don't know right now, you can just get back to me. My other question, and if you don't, and I'm sure you do know this right now, we talk about um, what it is when we say, we have leveraged this much money. What does that mean exactly? When we say we use money to leverage money, can you explain to me that process so I just understand that I see the numbers, I I can recite the numbers, but I'm not really with that. So sometimes I'm reciting something. I'm like, what am I reciting exactly? Because I don't really know what the process is. Um, Also, on page six, is it possible to put more information into this chart when you explain to me what the chart is with the with the blue line meant and what the with the orange line meant? I got it, but it's not in here as as well. So you can can you just do a little bit more, more explaining on that? And to Miss Glass's question, what we keep hearing is that even though we're meeting all these numbers, and I know that we are, and I, truthfully, I gotta tell you, I know how hard you all are working. This is such a Herculean effort. It's a regional problem. It's a statewide problem. It's a national problem. It's an everywhere problem, and we are doing well more than anyone else is doing. And I know that, and I recognize it not just by the numbers, but I, you know, we we we're, we're going to be cutting ribbons all all fall long. Um, but I still don't think that the that the information is hitting every community that needs to hit and specifically to our communities that might not be have English as their first language, they still are not feeling like that they are getting the information or the help. Now, it may be because a lot of the units that would be the under 30% AMI, which is the low income housing, it, we're not building as many of those as we are some of the ones that are 30 to 60 or, or 60 to, to 110. And so maybe that's that's the reason. I'm not sure what the reason is, but I do know from the community themselves that they still don't feel like they're getting any relief. They don't see any slowing on evictions. They don't see any slowing on information um, that's coming to, or, or, or quickening of information that's coming to them. It's still the, um, and, and this may be an issue for us or a nonprofit. It's still that they are signing leases that they don't quite understand because the leases are in English, and and they may not read English. And so, if a lease says that they can have their rent raised in the middle of their lease year um, every other month, they're signing that. And then when the when the rent's going up two or three times in a year, they 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 can't cover that cost, and they don't know what's happening, although they signed it, so it's legal what's happening happening, but it's. In my in my in my estimation is kind of immoral but it but it's legal and so having some help with that understanding of, of how their lease agreements work would be really really helpful um, and then my last question is the question I always ask is when we talk about the homes we have right now what is the percentage that is for rent versus what is the percentage that is for sale and how do we get more homes for sale that would meet the 35 to 75% AMI out there to, and get them ready for sale, not just for rent. I know that was a lot, but I do want to wrap it back around to how much I appreciate what you all are doing, and I, and I absolutely recognize it. So and thank you. Take
0: your time on the answers, and, share Randall, if you want to ask other questions, you can. I turned the clock off, so let's, that's a lot of questions to absorb. So a if you've got a to lot circle lot back and ask what that question was, feel free.
2: Thank you. I, I tried to take copious notes, so I think I have them all. And responded in order. Um, the, the first question was about the local tax fund dollars, um, cigarette tax. I believe that amount is 2.2 million um, that we have. It's still available to be spent, but I have been working with our budget office. Uh, we are working on a pilot initiative for adaptive reuse uh, and I am uh, looking to earmark uh, or, or recommend to earmark those funds um, that can be used in that manner.
1: The uh, program for adaptive reuse for the pur- purpose of purchase?
2: For the purpose of development. So it would take an, an old school. The yeah, old yeah, old but school. after
1: development for purchase or for rent? For rent. For rent still, okay, thank you.
2: The second uh, item was what do we mean when we say leverage dollars? I'll try to give an example. We usually look at and ask developers or applicants what the total project cost is when we receive a a proposal. So let's say for the sake of an example, total project cost with everything included, development, acquisition, development, soft costs, hard costs, closing fees, everything. Let's say it's $100 million for, for a round number. We generally liked, when we underwrite, we liked we don't like to uh, expend of county funds more than 40%. This has been my underwriting principle toward a project. So that would be no more than 40 million toward 100 million total project costs. That means the difference of 60 million is being leveraged by other sources. So in essence, our $40 million is getting us an additional 60 million, which is more than uh, 100% more than what we are investing. So when we say leverage, we usually, at least I usually speak in those terms. How are we making our dollar? What's our rate of return on our dollar that we're investing? Can you
1: explain, so this is one of these moments where I totally understand the words you just said to me, but can you explain how we leverage the money? How we leverage our 40%? I understand, I understand what we're, lever- but how does that happen? I, I don't, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't get it still.
2: Okay, uh, we usually have a sources and uses column. So we're looking at how does an applicant propose to use our funds? It depends on our funding source. So we have various uh, funding sources with various restrictions. If we're talking federal dollars like CDBG could be limited maybe just to acquisition. Maybe we would use some of the local tax funds for actual hard cost development. Um, but we usually aggregate the numbers. We don't usually split them out to say, you know, acquisition or development or soft costs. Uh, when we talk leverage, we we usually think of it in what's the total development cost, and how much did we spend, and what was our rate of return for each dollar that we invested. So we usually want to try to get at least a one-to-one uh, match. So forty to, and if the total project cost was eighty, we would have a one-to-one. Um, but in this example, if it was forty out of out of sixty, we're, we're getting more than that
1: so basically you're just saying we have a partner
2: our partners plural our
1: partners who are coming in with their with to, their
2: to mitigate our risk Yes.
1: Gotcha. okay thank you okay. <laughs> okay
2: the next question you have was on page six of the PowerPoint um, and I'm gonna ask if we can look at page seven Uh, because the page seven gives the actual data to the graph that's on page six. And if you, we start at the, toward the bottom, uh, total of the fourth quarter and the total of fiscal year, those are, I'll use the total of the fiscal year 23, uh, the fiscal year 23 goal for 500 and above, uh, and we, uh, for new was 350 and for access was 150. So the line above that Gives you what we actually produced in fiscal year 23. So we had 346 units out of 500 that was our goal, and it's broken out: 164 were new, and 182 were access had access or any type of assisted uh, rental assistance or uh, uh, down payment closing costs. But that's probably for me. That's the way I I look at the graph, and then I'm like, yeah. hard data is right there.
1: Okay,
7: John. Can I, Mr. Hall? Can I add? Just, Brian, can you go back to that chart? Um, so just to add to what Mr. Hall said too, so this chart, um, it just shows for the entire period that the Unmet Housing Needs Strategic Plan covers our goals. So the, um, you know, and which of those, so it shows total units and then which of those are new units. Um, and, you know, I can make an offer that if it would be helpful, we can add that detail to show kind of the, where we've achieved um, over the last several years. Well, that would be because, time. yeah
1: because... So I get the new the the new units, but when we talk about total units, are we saying like places that um that were going to go you know, like the, the, the apartment complex in Sterling that had all the accessible rental units, but they were going to go um off the market and become market price and we and we kind of stepped in and, and did something so that they stayed rental units. Is that what you mean by I mean,
2: that's that's one category, but it also means maybe a unit um, is receiving rental assistance, whether the state rental assistance it. program, okay. okay, or on a home ownership side. What if on our ADUs that we have given down payment, closing cost assistance to help a family purchase a home, that is also being counted?
1: Okay, interesting. All right, I I I get that. I get that. Yeah. And then, and then the, my, my, the the big question is rentals to home ownership and how, how often are we helping people purchase a home? How, how, how robust is our down payment closing cost program?
2: We are working to expand our, our down payment closing cost assistance program. I, w- I will defer to Mr. Regan to talk about what the current program is and he can talk about our efforts uh, to expand.
8: So the current households between the down payment and closing cost assistance program and the public employees grant program, which kind of work in tandem with one another, um, we have seen about 10 in the last year. Yes, ma'am. We also have uh, what's called the SPARC program, which is a partnership that the county has through Virginia Housing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that provides uh, a percentage decrease in the interest rate of eligible loans, which we have seen uh, tremendous uh, success with. So in the past or for this fiscal year, the county has been allotted $6.5 million. And I think around $2 million of that has already been expended.
1: And that's just to help them. That that's not closing cost and down payment. That's to decrease their interest rates.
8: Correct by one percentage okay. point.
1: Um, so it doesn't sound like we have a very robust closing cost down payment program. Is it something we can? I mean, what? How do we get there where we have more funds available for that, for that program? So
8: currently, we are in the process of finalizing the program design for a down payment. Uh, program for households that earn between 70 and 100% of the area median income, because the current requirements are between 30 and 70% of the area median income. To, so increasing that to uh, households above what would typically uh, qualify for the ADU program.
1: Why?
2: Though, I'll answer that one because that was pretty much my recommendation uh, to help our, our working class, so that for the 70% to 100% of AMI, uh, is where we would see most of the salaries hitting with with our, our teachers, our, our you know first responders, uh, things of that nature. And I thought that would give us a spark or at least an increase of, of demand uh, for That's our, fair. our That's program. A good answer. That's a good and, answer. And then the second part to that is we we do have a housing specialist who started, you know uh, when I did the same day I did, who has been building relationships with the lenders and, and promoting our, our program availability. And so we are expecting that will bear some fruit of production here in the near future, and we, we will continue to to do marketing and outreach.
1: May I ask one more question, Mr. Chairman? Why wouldn't it be? Um, how how was the decision made for the for the? I, I I call it syntax. I know that's probably not the right word, but that's what that's. You know, why, would, why was the decision made to do the, two, the whole 2.2 to adaptive reuse, especially given, the, I don't know the confusing definition of what adaptive reuse is in our zoning ordinance, why could some of that not go to a closing cost down payment program? Wouldn't that be a, a, a maybe not better but quicker use of that money?
2: So, the entire amount has, has not been, well, no amount has been earmarked. what Where the numbers are today that we we're projecting would land somewhere between one point five and two million. So mm-hmm. I just basically said, okay, that okay. this is that pot. Okay. But we do have additional resources that we're working for that are are earmarked. Um, or all my paper earmarked uh, for down payment, closing cost assistance. So we have about an additional 450,000 that comes from the Belmont trust, uh, that we need to work into this program. And that's part of the work that the staff is, is, um, working to, to roll out here in the near future.
1: So we are there's some money that just it just hasn't been put there yet that is earmarked for a closing cost down payment program. Because sure. because and I've said this before, if you are an apartment in, in an apartment in Loudoun County, your apartment's not a whole lot less than a mortgage would be because apartments are not expensive in Loudoun County. It's not that it's not that you couldn't afford a, a reasonable mortgage and a attainable unit, so they cannot gather enough money to get their closing cost and down payment money together to, to purchase a home. And so the, the more we can get money in that fund and then really you know advertise it and push that money out That the faster we can maybe get people into home ownership and not just home rentals it kind of and I know it feels the same way for you all it just hurts my soul when people come in and say I have been renting for 24 years I mean that should just that should never happen right if they unless they want to that should never happen so
2: thank you Uh, absolutely
1: and I I appreciate all y'all's work so much
2: I have one more question for, that you had. Okay. Uh, the fourth one uh, was uh, just information needed to hit communities. Um, that yeah. And yeah. so we are rounding out our staffing. Uh, Ms. Hillick uh, was our community development specialist, and we just hired a, a, her replacement last week, um, who is a, a, a native. Uh, Spanish speaker, so I am anticipating we will have more materials in Spanish and more outreach uh, that are targeted to uh, limited English proficiency uh, populations in the county. And then we also have a fair housing coordinator Mm -hmm. and they will be working in tandem to address uh, issues of fair housing, especially as it pertains to learning uh, how to read lease agreements. Um, part of, of what we're hoping will accomplish with a couple of the um, procurements that we're doing is uh, to identify a, a, a company or a nonprofit that does housing counseling that would like to expand uh, and do business in Loudoun because we do not currently have a HUD-approved housing counseling agency. And with our current um, request for proposal that is open to the public with the American Rescue Plan Act dollars, we're, we're hoping we'll we'll get some responses that will, will be from housing counseling agencies uh, to help uh, pr- perform the actual housing counseling that is needed. In our office on a daily basis, we receive uh, residents who are in you know dire need of resource, in addition to resources, guidance. Yes. And we're mm-hmm. not positioned yeah. to, provide to provide that think, guidance. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, we merely uh, oversee programs and provide gap financing, but mm-hmm. we want to be of, of ultimate mm-hmm. service. Uh, and so that is one of the things we're looking to to and hoping that we'll, we'll have some favorable respondents uh, that we can award some funding to help the residents who need it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Those are good answers. They are. Um, I mean, I realize this is, this is if, you know, if you're, if you're looking for a home, if you're being priced out of your apartment, if you're being evicted, it's um, it's just, you know, we all wish that the process can move faster because if you're in, if you're in a housing emergency, but um, overall, these are good answers, and, and we have staffed up and, and post up this department and you all, this department, in a very short amount of time. So I, I do appreciate all the work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, thank Mr. You. Chairman.
0: Uh, thank you very much. Um, I just want to echo the Chair's comments. Uh, I think you guys are doing a terrific job. I'm very, very pleased with with how the Housing Department's doing. Um, so I have a couple of questions uh, briefly. Um, What's the housing trust fund balance right now? Do you know?
2: The housing trust fund balance, uh, the last report I received, I believe it's uh, 31 million.
0: Okay. Um, What can we use the housing trust fund for? Is it just for uh, matching money for the LIDIC program and that sort of thing? Or can we pull money out of there for adaptive reuse or down payment and closing cost assistance? What, what's the functional restrictions on the housing trust fund?
2: Your question is timely because that, that's the very question I have out to our budget team. Uh, we're gonna research the actual resolution or, or whatever the parameters were uh, for that. I have been working as if the fund is limited to the low income housing tax credit dollars. So only basically one project a year um, but they were going to to provide that documentation, so we would know one way or the other.
0: Okay, that's a that's a interesting answer because that was my impression as well. So, the half penny uh, to the tax rate that we're doing every year goes straight into the housing trust fund.
2: Yes and no. I, I would say it's above or below the line. That is eligible for us to to identify projects to leverage, and we we can- have
0: a name for that pot of money.
2: I think budget does and it confuses me. Um, so I just usually call it local tax fund.
0: Yeah, that's, that's 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 exactly my impression, is that we have the housing trust fund, it has a balance, but it's restricted just to light it, uh, oper- uh, projects. And then there's this sort of fuzzy pot of other housing money floating around out there that's kind of unspecified and I'm not sure what those uses are for. I would really like to see us solidify that other pot of money and get the board clear that that other pot of money exists and and it has a whole lot more flexibility in it because I think that's the heart of the down payment and closing cost assistance source of funding going forward, which leads me to my so, uh, Chairman, next question. Well, Mr. I, Chairman, I
9: yeah, I just want to respond to your question. So sure. the housing trust fund, as it was set up, is restricted in in the uses that it can go towards, and I will defer to uh, Mr. Hall and his team to. To come back and provide a more complete response as to what those specific uh, programs that they can that, that the housing trust fund funds can be allocated towards. The half penny that the board has allocated is set up to go to housing programs. And so there is a number of different programs that um, the Department of Housing and Community Development have set up. And so they are responsible for allocating that half penny on an annual basis to to the various programs, which are identified and are part of the unmet housing needs strategic plan. So we do, um, we do allocate that annually to the different programs depending on the need. And so I don't know, Mr. Hall, if you wanna talk about those programs off the fly, or if you wanna come back with, with something with something else, but as part of the budget process, we do share that with the board, as well as the regular updates that we have, like the one tonight. So, yeah, and and to follow up with uh, that, I just want to make sure it's not fuzzy. It is defined as to where the money goes. Understand it,
0: yeah. uh, when I say fuzzy, it's a fuzzy phrase. <laughs> um, the board, I'm Mike Turner on the board. I knew there was a housing trust fund, but I thought it was restricted. I knew there was other housing money out there, but I didn't know where it was going. Your answer that it's going to various programs is fine. It would be nice during this update if I can see that other pot and where it's going within that other pot, because at least in my very next point, which is as I look at the data, particularly I'm on the, the full year results here. Hold on, oh, I'm still in my pen. How do I get my pen turned off? Um, page eight of nine so we're at 370 after three years we're at 37 and this is why when i asked to have this glide slope, this 20-year glide slope in the unmet housing deeds plan when the draft came out this is why because it lets us focus in on how we're doing and what we're doing right and what we're not doing so well on so 373 out of 900 out of out of three years tells me we're not going to get there from here we are not going to get there on new housing development we're not going to meet those goals so we need to change something. I'm not sure what it is, which leads me to my second question. Anybody in the room who can clarify this. My understanding is the zoning ordinance rewrite changes it, the chapter nine requirements, so that a single family detached and single family attached new development must provide 10% uh ADUs, 15% ADUs, and multifamily stacked and multifamily attached have to provide 15% ADUs. Do I have that correct?
8: If uh, so multifamily would go from six and a quarter to ten percent, and the correct. single family attached and detached would increase from twelve and a half to 15.
0: Correct, so I had that correct. Okay. so what I hear the development community pushing back and saying, "Oh it's 20 percent." Well, it's 20 percent aggregate increase over the 20 year period that the plan envisions, and that's because we get applications that have over those 10 and 15 percent limits, and they offer more affordable housing. A Lydic project can often throw 70, 80, 90 affordable units in one project, which is way over the 10 or 15 percent. So that's where that 20 percent comes from. So when I hear a developer push back and say, oh, no, no, we got to do 20 percent, I'm thinking to myself, and now this confirms it, we're not asking you to add 20 percent of, uh, of, of loss leaders to your pro forma. We're saying, in the aggregate over 20 years, we're going to need to make, create 20% of that total as affordable housing. For new development, it's 10 and 15%. Going up, and the reason i bring this up is I don't think those proformas for those developers can withstand more than the 10 or 15% uh, bogey that, that benchmark that we put into the, the zoning ordinance rewrite. And we're not making it at we're not making it at six and a quarter and 12 and a half over the last three years. If we're sitting here at 41.4% of new housing, we're not making it. So we gotta figure out something better because I don't think we can lean any heavier on the development community for new units. Mm -hmm. We gotta come up Mm -hmm. with a a better answer. The second one is the reason I like these goals is because it clearly tells me that our accessibility efforts are very successful. We're at 127% over three years. That's great, and if, if I'm sitting here as a layman looking at these numbers, I'm thinking, let's take whatever resources we have and funnel them down into those programs because those programs are working great, which leads me to the, I agree with the Chair Randall, let's get some more money into down payment and closing cost assistance and all of our other access programs because I think that's really good. Um, we had a great meeting today with, with uh, a potential uh, deal that, we could, that would create an entire community of affordable by design. I'm a big proponent of accessory dwelling units, though that raises parking issues. But I think we have tons of potential in this community on accessory dwelling units. Um, So, And I think if we created accessory dwelling units, a, a, a robust program, that I think would add to that new unit number, I think, because those are actually, we're creating new units on the market that didn't exist before with an accessory dwelling unit, rather than getting people into existing units. So I, I just, that's just an observation that I think, um, I, I think is important. And then the last point I wanted to make, it's really not a question, is I absolutely understand, uh, last night's meeting, I absolutely understand the frustration of the people that see rental assistance there and can't get their hands on rental assistance. But I wanna reiterate the fact that that doesn't solve the problem. Giving people money for rental assistance doesn't change the paradigm. It simply punts the ball down the field at some point we're going to run out of that assistance money and now we're going to have rental assistance problems again Mm. so at some point we need to figure out a way to get people that need rental assistance into a situation where they don't need the rental assistance either they have access to rental housing they can afford they have access to down payment closing cost assistance so they can buy affordable by design homes As as urgent and I I totally support the rental assistance programs as urgent it is, we need to be realistic and understand at some point that's that 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 cannot be the answer that is a urgent needed solution. Um, I used to work at Mental Health America, we had an entire annual conference and the theme was housing first get people in houses and then we can solve their other problems. So that's that's really important. But I really want to stay focused in this plan on the long-term solution to the problem so that ideally nobody has problems getting into a home here in Loudoun County. Um, I'm talking a lot tonight. I apologize. <laughs> um, any response, staff at all? And, and none is fine. Yes, sir.
2: No I, I will follow up with you on on the half cent sales tax but I, I did with the listing of the activities and programs we funded but I did want to highlight one of them that we we have ale- uh, earmarked funds for and that's our rental housing and acquisition preservation so 5 million of the, those funds have been allocated we just did not have a project come to fruition last calendar year uh, and then with the 13 Uh, certified developers that we just uh, uh, was just approved last night. We're hoping we'll have more of those developers with shovel-ready projects where we can actually increase rooftops in a relatively short time span.
0: Okay great and then one last thing I just remember go ahead Brian.
2: I was just going to clarify Chair Turner
8: that for the housing trust the initial rationale for that trust was for uh, depositing um, ADU funds from when they sell at market, the half of the yeah. equity goes into that trust. That. Yeah, yeah. So the yeah. beneficiaries yeah. of that trust have to earn between 30 and 70% of the area median income as opposed to somebody above those, those AMI. Influence. Okay, great.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Um, and then on the chart, uh, the, six the page six of nine on the chart that shows the, the, the goal for new housing and the goal for total housing, if you just added a light orange line to show how we've come for the three years thus far and a light blue line to show how we've come for the three years thus far, that'll give us a snapshot immediately shows where we should be and where we are against both charts. That's just a suggestion. Although you took my red, yellow, green light suggesting months ago and that worked out pretty well. Noted.
1: Long. Happy to provide that <laughs> detail. Yep.
0: Anything else from staff? Yeah, Madam Chair.
1: I have just one more thing. I'm sorry. So. Uh, if you've been watching the zoning meetings over the past weeks, I, there have been a lot of discussions about what does adaptive reuse mean. What, how are we getting to? The, so, I've, I've received a couple of different. Well, I received one explanation of what adaptive reuse is, which is different than the explanation in the in the definitions of our zoning manual. The way I hear you all using the word adaptive reuse is wh- the way I think about it. It's kind of um, you know taking a a a a building or an area and and reusing it or doing something different to it and so that it can be used for housing are you are you are you sticking closely to the definition that is in our books because the definition in our books in our books is repurposing of an existing structure just structure not a not like a whole strip mall say but structure to accommodate new uses while preserving the structure this often involves improving existing structures to allow for modern design and programming them for the new use, which is not the same as like the historic definition, which almost requires that you keep the same facade and that type of thing. How are you all using the term adaptive reuse? Because it sounds like you're using it how I'm using it, but I don't know if you're using it as, as closely tied to the definition as I've heard in planning, with planning and zoning staff.
2: Yes, the the way that we're using it is is the way that you just read it in the definition okay uh we are hammering out our formal you know program and, and policy so we'll make sure we, we cite that specifically and so we're all understanding the same scope uh, but but for me the working definition is an existing structure most likely not currently used or previously used for housing uh, but to try to adapt its original purpose so that it fits what our current needs are in the community which is housing
1: and we specifically mean and I know I'm being very nitpicky here but I just want to make sure I, I have that right we specifically mean <laughs> specifically mean a structure and not a again let, let's say a series of old office buildings or a or a strip mall we mean a standalone I'm trying to understand all the different definitions I hear Versus what I kind of have in my head. So could we, under your definition, do an adaptive reuse of a strip mall? Or or could we just do an adaptive reuse of a building in that strip mall?
2: From the research and the samples that that I've been studying, I think it could be any of any of those. But the key is it has to be an existing structure, underutilized structure that we're trying what to is repurpose. the word
1: structure that is... This, so this just block, improve, yeah.
2: improve property, okay. just uh, something on it, not vacant land.
1: Okay, yeah, so then, you, so then you and I are using, okay, then that, yeah, that's fine, and that's how, that's actually how I see it, but when the word structure to me means a building, it doesn't mean like a strip mall. So that's why I'm just, I'm just really trying to understand this this definition and the words of this definition, because I think that this is so key to tr- us trying to get to some of our housing goals.
2: Yes. And, and okay. I, I would I'm just thinking of, of some of the articles I've read recently where across the country, a lot of cities are, are going using use an adaptive reuse to target vacant um, office buildings because mm-hmm. workers mm-hmm. Yeah. Are, are working yeah, yeah. remotely to turn those yeah. all into residential. So it, but the, but it
1: doesn't have to be historic in the no. way that you're using it. OK, yeah. An historic structure okay all right yep then yeah we're on the same page thank you very much thank you mr chairman
0: any other questions from the committee yeah
1: and um, i actually right. have
6: one yeah. um chair turner when you were talking about accessory dwelling unit could i get like a in a definition what is that what does that look like
0: well for me a perfect example is you own a townhome the basement is unused and has an exterior entrance you could easily rent that room out for mm-hmm. five, six, seven hundred dollars a month to a, a single person, a server in a restaurant. And but there are certain, as I understand it, and staff correct me if I'm wrong, to do that would require certain kinds of permits and approvals from county staff to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, what Los Angeles did was instituted a program where they focused on all of those opportunities, and I can't remember the time frame, it was some outrageous short period of time, a year or two. They created four hundred thousand new units and they created templates for accessory dwellings so that when you went into the, uh, the, the permitting process, you could go into a, and, and say, I'll do template one, two, or three, and it was automatically fast tracked and streamlined through the permitting process so everybody knew what you were gonna do and you're committed to build it along those lines mm-hmm. and, and and create that accessory dwelling unit. It has enormous potential because how many townhouses do we have with empty basements and exterior entrances right now? The problem is, historically, we have underparked our townhouse communities. So now you suddenly add an additional 150 units in a townhouse community, how are you gonna park them? I don't know the answer to that question. But let's, let's tackle that. But I think there's enormous potential in accessory dwelling units, yeah.
3: Chair Turner? May I expand on your response? Please. So an, an accessory structure could also be an individual who owns a parcel of land that has their primary dwelling on it, but is also large enough that a secondary, smaller dwelling could also be uh, placed on that por- on that parcel. So you have the primary and then the ex- accessory. So that's also, whereas your, your example was within the primary, right. a space within the primary structure, it could also be a separate attached um accessory dwelling okay and the, and
0: the so far the conversation is sort of framed around we've either got to create more places to live or we've got to make it easier for people to get into the places that have already been created for us to live mm-hmm. what an accessory dwelling unit concept does is says let's look at our land and let's create more places to live without necessarily having to build more places now in that case you clearly would build a place unless you had a garage sitting there, it was unused as a garage, you could outfit it and, and, and turn it into two or three apartments. That's a perfect, excel. you haven't added any building, that, that's almost
3: adaptive reuse. Uh, I just think there's a lot of opportunities that we could, we could add to the stock. The garage is another perfect example. You could have the garage where you park your vehicles, but the, you could have a loft above sure. where the, that would be accessory. Sure. And, and,
0: and again, it goes back to the goals. We're not gonna get there with new units we're doing really well on access there's some there's some opportunity there so that's that's all anything else from 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 the team that that was wonderful i appreciate the brief and the info
2: not at this time we'll follow up with the the additional questions and data that you requested
0: very good anything from the committee i think we are done thank you all very much we are adjourned melt burgers and wait